Pamela Shamsi's new novel, Best of Friends, begins in Karachi in 1988, a year that would prove pivotal in the modern history of Pakistan. Zara and Mariam are two teenagers on the cusp of adulthood, finding their feet in a world where they have to keep one eye on the intrigues of the schoolyard and the other on the lives into which they are expecting or expected to step. Lives of vast opportunity, but also uncertainty. In fact, perhaps the only certainty for both Zara and Mariam is their friendship. Rock solid since the age of four. But then something happens that continues to cast a shadow 30 years later, when the story picks up again in London. Few writers are able to tread the sliding scale between the personal and the political as deftly as Camilla Shamsi, and Best of Friends is a virtuoso demonstration of this skill. As readers, we're plunged into both late 20th century Pakistani society and early 21st century Britain, through the eyes of pitch-perfect characters who, crucially, refuse to become mere ciphers, we see the parallels and contrasts of these countries and epochs. We also see how the decisions made at the top filter down to those condemned to struggle along the bottom, and how choices made to shore up one's public persona can have a devastating impact on private relationships. Best of Friends is a fascinating study of society and friendships, and I'm thrilled to say that Camilla Shamsi joins me to discuss it today. Camilla, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you, Adam, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, well, thank you for an absolutely um, fascinating book. Um, I suspect that this conversation, much like the book itself, is going to be divided into two parts, essentially Karachi and um, and London, and Karachi 1988 and London um, 2019. Now, one of these worlds, one of these places I'm much more familiar with than, um, than the other, um, of course. And so that's why for me, it was fascinating as a reader to discover um, Karachi of 1988. Now, I'm a more or less contemporary of uh, Zara and Mariam, a, a few years younger. So one thing that struck me immediately was how despite growing up in Bournemouth, as I did, or they're growing up in uh, Karachi, so many of our references, so many of our cultural touch points were so similar. Um, first of all, could you just talk a little bit about how it was for you thinking yourself into or perhaps back into uh, the world and the culture of Karachi in 1988? Um, I had enormous fun with it. And a lot of that was precisely because of those cultural touch points that you mentioned. I mean, you don't love, well, I shouldn't say you, my particular relationship to pop culture had an intensity in my teen years that, you know, is unmatched since. And to be able to mm -hmm. return to the music and the movies and things like the uh, the culture of video shops, which mm. was so important in our lives. Um, and of course, Mariam and Zara, um, there are two things at play here. One is they're growing up in a military dictatorship where there's a lot of censorship, which means that a lot of the cultural world around them is essentially muffled. Mm -hmm. um, and so culture is being imported from elsewhere um, by, I'm you know not proud to say, virus pirated video cassettes or pirated mm -hmm. music. I mean, none of this is official, though everyone knows it's going on. Um, none of it is legal, uh, possibly. Um, and also they are both English speaking, you mm -hmm. know, which is a sort of, you know, goes back to colonial rule and it's, it's about their class position, but it means that they have that access via language to Hollywood movies and to George Michael and the Pet Shop Boys and Bruce <laughs> Springsteen. Um, and so that is, and the books of Jackie Collins, um, yes. and, things. and and that is very much their, their cultural world. And, and it was mine as well. And there's this disconnect, which you don't think of as a disconnect, because as a child, you just accept what your world is, but there mm -hmm. is this absolute discon 
connect between the world around them, the world of Pakistan during military dictatorship, and this world that they are imbibing through pop culture. Mm. And so just to be clear, this is a world of pop culture which they have access to because of their relatively privileged position in in Pakistani society. So these the songs of George Michael or the novels of Jackie Collins wouldn't have been sort of widespread in, in Pakistan at this time. Well, music was much more widely available. And someone like, say, Michael Jackson in the 80s um, was a very big deal in Pakistan. And you'd mm-hmm. see these boys going around, you know, um, who for whom you knew English wasn't their first language, but for music, you don't need it as much. And they would have their leather jackets rolled up to their elbows mm. like Michael Jackson and Thriller. But certainly um, movies and books, which rely much more on language um, mm-hmm. and an understanding of language, um, you know, those would, you know, the, the fact that, that these girls, English is their first language, they're absolutely fluent in it, um, means that those movies and, and books are available to them. Hmm. And so um, what we find then, as you say, is this kind of, I guess, split in um, the the official um, rule of Pakistan, this kind of uh, cultural, so that you have uh, General Zia at the top and this kind of quite uh, relatively sort of heavy, heavily censored television and this kind of uh, rule with a, I suppose, with, a, with an iron fist, for want of a better phrase. And then you have Mariam and Zara, when I encountered their lives, I was quite surprised to find the, the certain liberty with which they they operated. And I guess it's maybe, you know, a relative liberty compared to, to certain people, but being able to uh, go to parties, being able to to listen to this music or or read these books and or being able to, you know, yeah, to go out, uh, you know, go out for a night with, with friends and things like that. Was this because of the the point at which... General Zia was in his in his leadership, which is sort of it. There, there felt like there was a certain sort of almost stagnation to the society, and he was perhaps already losing grip of it at this time. No, there was no point whatsoever where people at the class status of Maria Manzara wouldn't have been able to do these things. Right. Okay. You know, um, and it is you know, and one of the things that the novel does concern itself with is class, and that you know, mm. if you belong to a certain class, different rules sort of apply to you. Um, you know, unofficially, but they do. And you just, you know, get to live in different ways. And, and you know, military dictatorship doesn't particularly care if, you know, the top one or two or 3% are going mm-hmm. to party from time to time, um, you know. And, they, you know, it wasn't, you know, even though very often at these parties of the elite, there would be alcohol, which was illegal, but no one ever raided them. You know, there was a kind of, there is a, a privilege that comes with privilege, mm. <laughs> And so Zara and Mariam are both privileged, but in a sense, sort of privileged in in different ways. And that's something which becomes pronounced uh, more pronounced as the novel advances. So on the side of Mariam, it's certainly um, financial privilege. Uh, so she comes from a family which runs a kind of a, a leather um, empire, a leather goods empire, and. We get this, with Mariam, it seems to be more a kind of intellectual privilege. So obviously. Oh, Zara, excuse me. Yeah. So obviously, you know, her family have a certain amount of money, but there is also, there does seem to be this, um, this disconnect, which uh, informs their friendship in, in different ways between the two types of privilege that each of them embody. Yeah. And again, it goes back to, to sort of my interest in writing about class and, and the fact that actually even, you know, people who may look from an outsider's perspective as though they're sort of relatively in the same class. I mean, um, Mary and Zara, they go to the same private school. They 
both you know do have that English language facility that is related to class status, but they're aware that their families actually are quite different. You know, mm -hmm. Mariam's family is upper middle class and very rich, and mm -hmm. they go off for holidays in London and they drive around in Mercedes, and money just isn't an issue with them. And Zara's family is more so what you know, she would refer to as solidly working class. Mm -hmm. um, and really, it's only quite recently that her family has been able to afford to live in the more upscale neighborhoods of Karachi and even there in sort of, you know, a smaller flat rather than a huge house. Um, her mother is the principal of a school and her father is a cricket journalist who's just become a, a TV broadcaster yes. about cricket. And that's where the new uh, you know, relative financial luxury of the family comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to talk about the sort of the differences that um, these two backgrounds will eventually sort of engender in the way both uh, Mariam and Zara approach the world. But I'd like to think about this question of friendship um, in general, which is sort of so central um, to the novel. Uh, quite early on, um, you write uh, about the... Um, when it came to friendship, it was almost always a subplot to romance, never the heart of a story. And that struck me as very, very true, actually. The sort of the, let's say, the um, real sort of legendary stories about friendship are actually pretty few and far between. They are. And in fact, you know, this was a, a critique against my own earlier writing um, hmm. because friendships, you know, are very central to my life. And yet you wouldn't know that from reading my novels. Uh, where friendships are very much subplots and it's either uh, familial relationships or it's romantic relationships that that seem to be far more central and I just thought well you know this is wrong mm -hmm. um, and and it is also true that that looking around at the world of fiction um, I was I was aware of this I mean I remember years ago when I was at university a friend of mine saying well of course the real hero of Hamlet is Horatio and I said, oh, and she said, well, you know, just think of it. Hamlet mistrusts everyone in the world. Not for a second does he mistrust Horatio. And at the end of his life, he says to Horatio, you have to tell my story. And he mm. entrusts that. He entrusts his entire legacy. And I thought, God, that's so wonderful and moving. Um, and I suppose I've had an eye out then for these these stories of friendship that are really sort of quietly heroic, but we don't pay that much attention to. Yeah, that, that feels so true. And I'm... I mean, would you be open to sort of speculating on why friendship has not occupied that sort of central place in our narratives? Is it just because it's generally less explosive than a romantic love story, for example? Um, I think I think probably it is that, that there isn't that, it's not seen as being sort of the same passionate high stakes mm -hmm. um, of either a familial or a romantic story. Um, and certainly, you know, romance stories are sort of the bedrock of every culture's literature that I can think of, mm. um, or it's warring, warring tribes, which is, of course, familial stories. Right. Um, and that friendships, I think, feel more low stakes and very often because they just involve two people. I mm. mean, not necessarily you can have a friendship, group, but it can just involve two people. And the thing about friendship is you can say, right, I'm done with that and just walk away from it in a mm. way that is much harder if your lives are entangled and you have you know, siblings in common, or you pay bills together, or you have right. children, or you're you're living together. Um, so, and in some ways, though, that is to me what makes friendships so remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it is so easy to walk away from them, and yet, how many of us stay through the really difficult points of them, determined to keep them going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and one thing I suppose, and this particularly applies to Zara and Mariam, um, is this phrase which. 
has kept coming back to me in, in recent years in, in, in different contexts. And I can't remember who I first heard it from. So I'm afraid I'm going to not be able to credit them. But this idea that you can't make a new old friend. Mm. And there's something about those friendships that you form in the case of Zara and Mariam, when they're four, or, you know, I think my, my oldest friend, I met him when we were 11. And mm. which, even as your lives grow apart, even if you have essentially, if people look at you and think there's no reason for these people to be friends, there's something in your history that, that binds you together. Absolutely, Adam. And, you know, it, it wasn't just friendship I wanted to write about. It was very specifically childhood friendship for precisely mm. that, that reason. I mean, the novel, you know, if there is a deep origin point, it's a conversation I had with my sister in our 20s um, when she said, you know, the, the friends you make is when, once you're an adult are your friends because you have something in common. Mm -hmm. But your childhood friends are your friends because they've always been your friends. Mm -hmm. um, and however true that may have felt in my 20s, it feels so much more true now i'm in my late 40s um, mm -hmm. you know and you can look back and there are people who i'm you know i'm 49 i have friends who i've known for 45 years now yeah and they know every piece of my life and they know and i think this becomes really important as you're getting older and as the generation above you is is getting older and you're losing them is your childhood friends know what it was like for you to be the child of your parents growing up mm. You know, I think that's a really crucial thing very often or, or what your relationship with your sibling was when you were six and 11 and 15. Mm. Um, you know, I think things like that are crucial. And, and also there is just something to that comes from shared history. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's also a bond um, in, in the sort of almost the lack of choice associated with uh, childhood friendships in a way, like um, particularly, I guess, you know, with Zara and Marion, but they're, they're four years old. They're, there's not really necessarily a sense in which the, you, you would choose to, to be friends with that person. You always sort of, you're thrown together and you tend to sort of grow together or not grow together. Whereas with more adult friendships, you know, there's, there might be similarity of interest or something like that. And there's this sort of overt choice. Whereas when you're younger, that's, that's much more absent. And that, that's why I think it's really important where this novel begins, because it begins with Zara and Mariam in their teenage years almost at the moment where choice in who one spends time with, who one is friends with, and how those friendships develop uh, enters into their lives. That's absolutely right. I mean, they, they became friends at four. And, you know, one of them later says that she has no memory of how the friendship started. She has yeah. a very early memory of the other one helping her tie her shoelaces. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but but beyond that, she really doesn't know why why they ever became friends. And when we meet them at 14, it's actually the first time that there is a sort of disruption in the friendship. Mm -hmm. um, there is this, you know, as you referred to earlier, there's there's an incident that occurs that that makes them sort of, you know, consider each other. Um, mm -hmm. And and of course, they are also at an age where partly because politically so much is happening in Pakistan, they're surrounded by, you know, conversations at home about how people feel about things like power and democracy mm. and and you know all of that um and they're taking that in and they're aware that you know the other one's family doesn't see it this way at all mm. and i mean also what a time to be or to be becoming a young woman in Pakistan, right? Because that's one thing we feel immediately in the early pages is you know they're going back to school after the summer and i think we all remember this moment where you know around 14 15 where 
your friends and you, you've all changed a little bit over the summer that some people are, are maturing more sort of physically, showing the signs of becoming young women or young men and the way that impacts on the the dynamic between friends and between uh, between men and women. But then alongside what, what happens, and you know, I hope this isn't a spoiler because, you know, uh, I imagine a lot of our listeners will know about the history of Pakistan, but you also have the the end of General Zia's reign and the election of uh, Benazir Bhutto as this kind of young, dynamic, uh, formidable woman in Pakistan. So there must have been such a sort of uh, an exciting, but also it's a way it's kind of contradictory time to be a young woman in Pakistan. Yeah. And, you know, the first line of the novel is first day back at school. Um, uh-huh. And and I wrote that and then I thought, is that too kind of just simple? And I thought, no, there are a lot of people for whom that, you know, instantly that conjures up something. First mm-hmm. day back at school, you know, what's happened over the summer holidays. And particularly when you're young, just being apart for two or three months in the summer mm-hmm. can be quite dramatic. Um, and at 14 or 15, I do remember sort of, you know, the start of the school year, suddenly there would be you know, boys who had started shaving or had started sprouting moustaches or girls whose shapes had changed or mm-hmm. something had happened. Um, and I wanted the novel to to show that that actually discrepancy between, on one hand, you know, when dictatorship ends, democracy arrives, there's a woman in power. So there's this feeling of everything has changed. But also mm-hmm. if you're 14... Your day-to-day life is your day-to-day life. And in some ways, you know, the most consuming thing is the boy you have a crush on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether your friend is keeping secrets from you. Um, and the way you sort of move between the sort of, you know, excitement about the external world, but also you are still, you know, you at 14 in your changing body with all mm-hmm. kind of new hormonal things happening that you don't quite understand. So this is from a very early section of the novel, um, and the two girls, Maria and Zara, are 14 years old, and it is their first day back at school. It had been happening since last year without anyone but Maria and her tailor taking much notice, but the summer in London had accelerated it. All that chocolate and ice cream and fast food had settled in unexpected places and brought with it the discomfort of underwired brows and a body that felt unknown. For a while in London, she thought she had lost the ability to judge her own dimensions, which was why her breasts kept bumping into strangers, until she realized it was almost never women with whom she was making the unexpected contact. Once understood, she didn't know how she felt about it. Sometimes she wanted to cry. Other times she was triumphant. It was purely humiliating, though, to overhear her father tell her mother that she needed to go to Oxford Street and buy their daughter an entirely new wardrobe because all her clothes looked indecent. So out went her favourite shirts. The Madonna one, the tiger with Monte eyes one, the nautical striped one. The new shirts were looser fitting and without images or ornamentation that might draw people's eyes to her chest. It made little difference to the men bumping into her on the tube or to that friend of her parents who'd started squeezing her shoulders affectionately and pulling her close the way her uncles had always done, but never him. The previous summer in London, she had imagined visibility was what she wanted. In Karachi, men stared if you were a girl. It was something to which she was accustomed and shared with every other girl in the city. 
in London, people look through you. The contrast was disquieting. Notice me, notice me, notice me, she'd chanted internally when walking down the street. And now, wish granted, she had passed into a new category of person, her relationship to the world around her altered. At the same time, everything seemed to carry on as it always had. <clears throat> there was no one in London she could talk to about this. Only on that first day of school, during break time, watching Zara reach over the heads of students standing in front of her to pay the man in the tuck shop for two bottles of Coke and two packets of chili chips, did it all make sense. There had always been a joke at the heart of their friendship, a gag that appeared first at the visual level before revealing itself to run through many layers. Now there was Zara, all straight lines, and Mariam, all curves, adding another element to their study in contrasts. Thanks, Dan, she said, taking her Coke and chili chip packet from Zara. Welcome, Ollie. She wondered if Zara, she wondered if Zara shared this feeling of completeness when they were together that could surely only be possible when you'd been best friends with someone since the age of four and your character had been defined by the other. She suspected not. There were things Zara wanted from the world that Mariam didn't understand, things she found in books and in her own mind, which sometimes wandered far away from Mariam into places she rarely talked about because she knew Mariam couldn't follow her there. When Zara did say things like, do you think everyone has purpose in life? Or do we invent purpose to stop feeling irrelevant? Mariam never knew how to answer. She didn't know which part of the question made less sense to her, purpose or irrelevant. She had tried to come up with an answer, something to do with wanting to expand her family's business into the international market. And Zara had frowned and said, that's ambition, not purpose. There's also, I suppose, this kind of disconnect between um, the capacity of a of a country to elect a young, dynamic woman to the the role of prime minister, and then on the flip side, which we 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 discover as we spend time with uh, Mariam and Zara, the way women in Pakistani society generally in 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 Karachi have to act differently to the men. Like there's not there's this kind of political liberation. And yet at the same time, there's this sense, I mean, you write that, you know, Karachi's knights were not for girls or women, or whereas men strode owning the world, women walked with smaller steps, watched and watchful. And that's a kind of, that must have been an interesting disconnect to live as well, sort of being able to accept this woman in a position uh, of power, while at the same time, in everyday life, not necessarily feeling that one embodies that position of power. Yeah, I mean, it remains an interesting disconnect, doesn't it? I mean, mm. you know, you've got a woman prime minister in Britain now. Does that mean there's gender equality and, and that right. as a woman, yeah. I can walk through a park at night? No, I can't, mm -hmm. you know. So and of course, that did feel more heightened um, in in Pakistan in the 80s. Um, and it's part of, of what, you know, happens in the novel is Benazir comes to power and these girls feel anything is possible for 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 a girl. Mm -hmm. And they also feel that our lives can't be the same as they were last week because now there's a woman in power and they do something that is, you know, a little bit reckless. Um, mm -hmm. And they end up in a situation where they are reminded of the vulnerability and precarity of being a girl, no matter who has just been elected prime minister. So we won't go into the the details of what of mm -hmm. what this situation is, because I don't want to, to, mm -hmm. to ruin it for listeners who haven't yet 
read the book. But it there is this event where something happens or almost happens might be um, a different way to um, to, des- to describe it, which as we then project forward into the, the second part of the novel. So we leave uh, Karachi, we come to London, we jump forward uh, 31 years, is still in certain ways working on both, um, uh, both, both Mariam and Zara. But before, before we talk about those particular ways, I'm interested about the two epochs and the two locations you chose to, to to set it in. Now, you know, one one assumes as a reader that if we're going to have these two different places and these two different epochs, that the novelist is going to try and sort of draw connections uh but between between the two societies. And and you certainly do that. And I think you do do it in, in, in some interesting ways that are quite sort of unexpected uh for the reader. But was was it always clear to you when this novel was coming together that it would be these two time periods and these two places set alongside each other? Uh, no, Adam, the first draft, you know, had four sections and you see them through their twenties and thirties. <laughs> but, okay. but but what happened was I mean I always knew it was going to start in Karachi and end in London. Um, so that was always clear to me, but I, I thought I had to write my way through their lives. But, mm. but what happened was as I was writing those sections of them in their twenties and thirties, I had this, I kept having this image in my head of, of one of them sitting on a park bench in London with one booted leg crossed over the other. And the second coming friend coming to join her on that park bench, mm. uh, which is the beginning of the second section in London mm. now. And it was almost as though half my brain knew that actually that's where the story is. It's not in these other bits you're writing. Yeah. And I think I had to write the other bits so that, you know, I had got to spend time with them in their 20s and 30s and, and figure out, you know, the women they were becoming and, and the lives they were going to have in their 40s. But actually the story was never there, which is why the writing of it, as I was doing it, just felt mm. quite flat to me compared to the Karachi and London section. So it was, you know, it was writing you do and then you toss out. Uh, yeah, because you, yeah, yeah. you found the actual story. Although now you see, I'm 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 not going to ask you to do this, but I'm absolutely <laughs> fascinated to know what uh, <laughs> where their stories yeah. uh, led them in that time. Um, so so let's talk about the 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 women that um, Zara and Mariam become. So you said it begins on the park bench, and it it does and it doesn't because before mm. we we get to the park bench, we have a a couple of articles. Uh, one. Mm. Uh, from the Guardian, one from a kind of tech business uh, magazine. Uh, the first one about Zara, and the second one um, about Mariam. So perhaps for our listeners, you could just give a little introduction to where each of them finds themselves at, at this point in their lives. Um, yes, the the second section sees Mariam at the head of an organisation called the Centre of Civil Liberties, um, which sort of roughly does the same sort of work that Liberty in the UK does, or the um, ACLU in America um, and she had been a, a lawyer working primarily in human rights and now she's moved to the head of this organization and and has quite a public profile because mm-hmm. you know she comes on television regularly to decry you know the government's latest laws on surveillance or refugees and things like that um, so she has a very public role is, and is quickly recognized you know as she's walking through that park a little later um, whereas Mariam is um, one of those people who is well known within her industry, but certainly not mm-hmm. publicly. She's a she's a top venture capitalist, and her particular success is an app called Image, which is um, a photo sharing app with exceptionally mm-hmm. good facial recognition software. Um, and she is very very wealthy 
very successful, but not with the kind of public persona um, that Zara has. Mm. And so these two um, sort of very different sort of uh, outcomes for uh, Zara and Mariam, and yet, despite that, they are meeting on this park bench and their friendship, at least at this point in the novel, is as is as tight as um, as it ever was. Did you see that that sort of dynamic of of that friendship remaining so tight as being something sort of essentially sort of inherent to to the to their friendship? Like when you when you were conceiving of how it would develop, like even perhaps in these lost sections in their twenties and thirties, had had that been a kind of a, a consistent thing, and did that push them into the the lives that they ended up in? I always knew that they would be really close friends all the way through the novel. And I knew that what I wanted to do was to pile certain kind of pressures. So in that Karate mm-hmm. section, because of that event, we aren't going to detail. There's a certain kind of pressure that's put on the friendship. Yeah. Um, and and then, as you said, it sort of casts its shadow forward and other shadows join it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it, and, and really what I, in the writing of the book, what I wanted to do was to have a friendship that is unshaking in its love mm-hmm. through the decades. Um, but there are all kinds of of fissures that are opening up in that friendship. And it, at a certain point, it becomes impossible to walk around them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but I always I always absolutely knew they'd be friends. And also I knew that once they moved to London, it the friendship becomes even more important because they are what connects, you know, each of them has the other person to connect them back to their childhood in another mm-hmm. country. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so this this is sort of interesting diver- tension, which um, sort of is inherent in the roles that they occupy, I suppose, in that, uh, as you mentioned, sort of Ma- Mariam's head uh, role as the head of image, which has this facial recognition software, could be seen as almost sitting in sort of opposition to Zara's uh, head uh, role as the head of the Centre for Civil Liberties, because sort of the question about where our, um, you know, our freedom, our, our right to a private life uh perhaps uh, begins and ends but one thing i find fascinating is that at least for a time this kind of let's say moral disconnect between their lives mm. doesn't seem to 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 undermine uh, the friendship well it's sort of abstract to them you know i mean they have these mm-hmm. sort of conversations where where zara says oh god facial recognition and, and mariam says well the thing with 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 my app is you can opt out of it and people mm-hmm. don't you know, people mm. are choosing to be recognized. So, you know, this is not about the government. This is not, this is about what people want. Um, yeah. And I'm giving them the option to say, no, I don't want it. Um, mm-hmm. And and so it sort of exists at that level of of abstraction and, and also the level of, you know, we've been friends so long, we know we don't agree on this. Well, you know, okay, you know, let's talk about the things we do agree on, which is the people we love in common and the jokes we share and, and the fact that we know each other intimately and we enjoy walking through London through the park on a Sunday together. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, if also part of it is the sort of the mm. the baby steps we take to get to the places we do mm. in our lives. We're sort of with each one, it never seems a particular kind of jump away from a particular person or a particular position. And it's almost only the moment that you suddenly stop and look at the two positions that, that you now occupy, where you realise the sort of the gulf that has come to to exist between you. Yes, I think it's it's a mix of that and the fact that neither of them is surprised to know that they've mm-hmm. grown into very different people because they always have been. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know, Mariam talks very early on about how 
there was always a joke at the heart of their friendship, which is sort of a visual gag that then ran through to reveal mm-hmm. itself to exist at much deeper levels, which is their study in contrasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, there's a moment where they refer to each other, Stan and Ollie, you know, yes. <laughs> um, in this sort of Laurel Hardy kind of way. And it's, it's in the, in their physicality, but it's also in their person. And, and to them, actually, that there's there are points in which that is part of the strength of the friendship and what they love mm-hmm. in it is that we are so different. Um, mm-hmm. And we, and you can see differences being as complementing each other, um, you know, that you are, you, you know, you are the wild to my sensible and you yeah. are the sensible to my wild. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they, it's not that it comes as a surprise to them, I, I think. I think it's just that they, they try to look at the upsides of it mm-hmm. and just sort of roll their eyes at the downsides. And of course, the other thing to be said about friendship, and this is very crucial, is, is the difference between friendship and most people's idea of romantic love is that with friends, you can have many of them. And uh-huh. you, can, you can decide, I have different friends for different purposes. So Zara certainly has the close friends, including her colleague Rose, who sees mm-hmm. the world much as she does. And she knows that at certain moments when she's, you know, feeling sort of angry at the government about some new law, she's not going to say, oh, Mariam, I need to come over and have a consoling drink. She'll call up Rose instead for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mariam gets to serve a different purpose in her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose in, in a sense, that's kind of acknowledgement of the different uh, sides to our own characters as well. And that's one thing we we find when in that first conversation, the first conversation we see in 2019 between Zara and Mariam, is this sort of, um, them sort of teasing each other about the sort of the difference in their public persona and the kind of the the narrative arcs that each of them have created for themselves to explain their stories, to explain how they got to where they are. And the maybe, let's say, the slightly murkier, slightly uh, grayer truth of the matter, which of all of the friends in their lives, they only each of them has access to. Yeah, there's something that is both really lovely and really irritating about mm. that, that, <laughs> that best friend who knows all the ways in which your public persona and public narrative, mm-hmm. you know, are hiding things or simply just lying at times, you know. Yeah, you have yeah, that yeah. like, yeah, no, I mean, I know the real version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I guess, in a way, slightly threatening. Like, you know, this person has the capacity to expose you in some way. Well, it's only threatening if you conceive of that person as someone who would be disloyal to you. And mm-hmm. I think that's the one thing that, that they really don't do. Mm-hmm. You know, too much, it's sort of, you may make mistakes. You may at moments be selfish rather than selfless, but you won't actually go out and betray me. Has been, I think that is sort of the, the foundation of the friendship, is this, uh-huh. is this belief that you would never knowingly betray me. That that idea of um, loyalty between the friends, I think, is quite an interesting one, actually, because and again, I'm going to talk around this because I don't want to, to reveal too much. But one thing that causes a crisis in their friendship is actually a sort of a different interpretation of how that loyalty should manifest itself. So there's a moment where where Mariam takes some actions, which for her is being, you know, she sees as being fundamentally loyal to what her friend would want and to their friendship itself. And yet for Zara, it's it she doesn't feel it as a betrayal, because I think you're right, there isn't that sort of almost isn't that possibility between them. And yet it's so fundamentally anathema to how she would respond in the situation that it causes this this tension and this crisis nonetheless. 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing about close friendships is there's <clears throat> there's a lot that happens at the level of subtext mm-hmm. and silence. Mm-hmm. But subtext and silence can very easily be misinterpreted, even if you know someone very well. Um, you know, and I think there's there's a lot of, sort of assumption about you knowing what the other person really meant or mm-hmm. you understanding what was going on in someone's head when they did a certain thing they did. Um, mm-hmm. And that can lead to all kinds of problems. Uh, the other problem with childhood friends, um, and, well, not problem, but a characteristic of childhood friendships, I think, um, which comes up in the novel is sometimes if you've known someone through the entire course of their lives, you fail to see the person they are because you are so mm-hmm. hung up on ideas you developed years ago about who they were. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You put me in mind, I mean, it's a different thing because it's a parental-child relationship, but you put me in mind of this scene in one episode of Seinfeld where he asks for some pumpkin pie and his mother is like, you don't like pumpkin pie, you've never liked it. And there's this kind of weird back and forth where she just seems constitutionally incapable of accepting that he might have developed a liking for for pumpkin pie at some point. Yeah, it's exactly, there's always a very good Seinfeld reference point for anything we might want to say about the yes, universe. It's, it's the Seinfeld rule. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about the um, the way you you couch the the two episodes in politics, I think slightly differently, whereas in, in Karachi, as we talked about, you have General Zia, you have uh, Benazid Bhutto, they're, they're named, they're firm figures um, who sort of occupy a very kind of clear historical role in the novel. In the 2019 section, uh, you're, you don't name any of the politicians. So, so we get into the sort of the inner political circles. But um, whereas, you know, anybody who follows British politics will be able to identify certain characters who your, um, you know, your particular characters resemble, the society you paint, it seems to me, intentionally doesn't map completely onto the uh the 2019 of that we've we've all recently lived through was that a a choice principally because we are still essentially living in that period or was it to do with something about the way you wanted to to represent politics in the uk um honestly adam it was largely the fact that if i was actually writing about politics 2019 it would be entirely consumed by brexit talk right (laughs) you know which was not what i i wanted in there um, and so I do play, I mean, I have, you know, I have slightly different dates for when, you know, the government fell um, mm-hmm. and a new government comes into place. So it, it doesn't map exactly onto um, the events of, of the UK. And yet, you know, as you say, anyone who knows um, particularly English politics, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not taking on it's taking on Westminster rather than Holyrood. Um, right. Will will, I think, recognize that what I've done is is sort of taken certain aspects of what was going on politically and and put the spotlight on that um, mm-hmm. and and left the uh, Brexit machinations out of things. Mm-hmm. One thing that, that kept coming back to me um, as I was reading, and again, as I say, as a reader, sort of looking for the the parallels between um, between the the Karachi of nineteen eighty eight and London of twenty nineteen, was sort of how Mariam and Zara sort of essentially embody the last kind or sort of the transitional generation from a sort of a non-internet, non-online world to uh to, to a world where everybody is online pretty much all the time, whether whether they know they are or not. Um and that seemed to sort of uh, in some way 
uh, I suppose, muddy the capacity to draw uh, links between the the way politics operated in Pakistan in eighty eight and in England in in, in twenty nineteen, but also allowed certain sort of interesting parallels. So when you when you talk about authoritarianism in in twenty nineteen, that seems to be as much embodied by organisations like Image as by uh, as by the government itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, to me it was sort of really interesting to consider. Um, these sort of analogies and and they're, they're not direct parallels but but you have to say well if we're going to talk about surveillance you're no longer only talking about governments but you're talking about mm-hmm. corporations you know um i mean there's a there's a company called clearview ai which every now and then the new york times writes about um, uh-huh. which has basically scraped the internet and all social media to get images this huge data of images of everyone and and law enforcement agencies are using it and now you know, there was recently a case of a defense lawyer finding an image to prove that his client or her client couldn't be at, have been at a certain place at a certain time. Um, and, you know, the question of how um, the state and these organizations are going to work with each other or against each other, I think, becomes mm-hmm. a really interesting one. But also Mariam's point that, you know, as I was growing up in Pakistan, no one wanted to be surveyed. No one wanted to be seen or their actions to be recorded. It was mm-hmm. un- unthinkable. Um, and now, of course, we we do want, or many people, you know, will opt in to the facial recognition. Many people will opt in, opt out of privacy settings and want, mm-hmm. you know, their lives to be as public as possible. But that also means that there's the capacity for surveillance. So so it does, you know, to me, it was really fun to, mm-hmm. to think of um, their parallels and they're not parallels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I suppose one of the parallels um, on a sort of personal level is the way in which uh, Mariam runs the company. Now, we haven't talked about the figure of her grandfather yet, but there's some very... there's a very stark, quite quite sort of unsettling scenes in in, in the Karachi section of the way that her grandfather sort of runs this 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 leather goods empire i would you know not exactly in the vein of uh of a dictator but definitely with you know employing certain um certain techniques which might be might have been inspired by by that kind of regime and we see mariam in a very different company obviously where everything about social media is about you know about freedom and light and sort of you know a certain sort of cool aspect to it and yet under the surface she uh, she takes some some actions which are very directly inspired by uh by her grandfather well look i mean we know that that the large social media corporations who may be all about freedom and light are also having conversations with china about you know what do we need to do to have access to your markets mm-hmm. um, when you don't like freedom so um you know the, the there's this public persona of freedom and life but i don't think many of us are really fooled that that's all there is. Um, but yes, certainly Mariam is, you know, grows up with this grandfather who treats his his business as though it were his fiefdom, I think is probably mm-hmm. the, the most apt analogy there. Um, and and has this notion that the world is brutal mm-hmm. and it's kind of eat or be eaten, you know, so you gather as much power as you can and you use that to look out for your own interests. Um, which includes, you know, the interests of your family and your friends and people you love, um, mm-hmm. and that you, if necessary, you know, this is how this is the language in which he would term it. You have to be brutal 
to mm-hmm. hold on to that power. Otherwise, someone will take it from you and use it against you. Um, and, you know, Mariam looks around contemporary England and finds echoes and resonances mm-hmm. um, of that world she was taught about from her grandfather. Yeah, uh, but one yeah, of the things yeah. I was interested in, Adam, with this is, you know, so many of the stories of, of migration, so much of what, you know, could be termed migrant fiction, um, is about discontinuities. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, particularly if it's about someone from the global south going mm-hmm. to the global north, it becomes a story of culture shock and difference. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, that comes with freedom and reinvention. And other times it's just about horror and oppression and never fitting in and, and all that. And I want to tell the story that is actually about the continuities you can find uh-huh. between one place and the other. Um, and, you know, in the case of the Pakistan that Mariam knows, and again, this is very class-based, and the one she mm-hmm. moves into in, in England, some of the continuities are cricket and, in fact, the class system. Uh-huh. Um, but other continuities are the way you can use money to leverage power. Mm. Mm. And yeah, at the same time, one thing that I was just going to come on to was this, uh, because I'm thinking about their, their sort of emotional lives. So mm. they're sort of, so we talked a lot about the friendship, but you know, as they grow, grow older, they, they enter into uh, relationships or, uh, well, in the, case, in the case of Zara, with slightly less uh, success, for want of a better word, than, um, than Mariam. But it strikes me yeah. that they're both living these kind of emotional, romantic lives, which, and correct me if I'm wrong, would not be so feasible had they had they remained in in Karachi, and I'm curious to know whether you think that was sort of, in some way, sort of you know they are stepping into the lives which they w- were essentially always destined to to live, but would ne- would not have necessarily been able to, or if in some way they are sort of uh, sort of affected by the mm-hmm. the the different mores and the different freedom of the of uh, of Britain compared in 2019 compared to Karachi in. I mean, I think yeah, there's, the no, there's no version of a sexual life that doesn't happen everywhere in the world, but what changes is how public you can be about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and certainly in in England, as you know, in, in Pakistan as women, the only thing you can be public about as a woman is mm-hmm. being married. You know, right. any any other being married to a man and having children. And, and you know, that is, you know, the one sort of publicly acceptable role related to mm-hmm. sexuality. Um, and, and in England, of course, they can both do things differently Mm. um and i suspect it's you know i think you can look back their childhood selves and say oh yeah i see how they ended up where they did so Mm -hmm. so i think it was something that was you know sort of always there or or building early on um but they get to express it in certain ways in london uh i have to say actually the um what uh, the outcome for for Zara in that respect was mm. one of the most sort of surprising for me actually, and it is mm. one of one of the reasons I want to go back and reread the novel mm. actually is to sort of find the seeds yeah. of that in in her mm. in her earlier love because she's sort of uh, there's a sort of I guess a sort of a, a, a dissipation to the uh, <laughs> to the the way she expresses uh, mm. her sexuality. Um, which which came as quite quite a quite a surprise and quite unexpected to me. So I'm sort of yeah, as I say, intrigued to to now reread the Karachi section and see if I can uh, if I can unpick that from what we <laughs> what we get to know. Yeah, I mean the seeds are there in Karachi. You just don't know they're the seeds until I think you uh-huh. read it for a second time, or at least that's my hope, Adam. You may read it again and say <laughs> I'm still no idea where this came from. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. One <laughs> uh, one uh, sort of strand of um, Zara's uh, storyline. So for it. As in her role as the head of this uh, civil liberties organization, uh, is 
she comes into contact with um uh with 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 refugees and with with asylum seekers and again without going into to too much detail about the the story itself she is confronted with the uh i mean brutal for want of a better word uh treatment that is is is, is meted out to people who particularly have their requests for asylum uh, rejected or the request for citizenship rejected uh, in the UK. Now, uh, I, I'm assuming that this is um, something which you know you, you've uh, you've researched quite a bit, and sort of really there feels a sort of a political urgency to the expression of this because while we read about it in newspapers, and in fact Zara has this reaction herself, there's these few specific details which I'd never read about before and which come out of the blue and which, yeah, are quite sort of astonishingly harsh, even given what we, we already know about the British government, this treatment of... Yeah. of, of I quite de- deliberately, with, with the, the primary story related to that, I, I made the, the decision that actually it wouldn't be a refugee or asylum seeker to begin, mm-hmm. that it's actually a man who, you know, is in, you know, she's dealing with the case of a man who's in Britain because he's married a British citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he doesn't come by a refugee asylum seeking route at all. And he, you know, is not in that kind of desperation, but he's married. He has a life in Britain. And then in one of, and the thing about the British government's cruelty towards um, certain categories of migrants is it's not just about refugees and asylum seekers. It's much mm-hmm. wider. It's people who actually, you know, tick all the boxes of why they should be staying, but there's still these tiny loopholes that can be found to reject their, applications for citizenship and and that's what happens with this man and and then of course you do end up in a situation where their presence becomes illegal um Mm -hmm. and i've worked quite a lot um for some years with a really remarkable group called refugee tales which pairs up writers with people who have been in detention centers or Mm -hmm. in some way involved with um you know that process of, of detention centers um and so i've heard a lot of the stories and and when i was writing the novel i actually wanted to go into one of the detention centers because um, Refugee Tales, its sort of parent organization, um, really started off as people visiting detainees. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of the lovely, humane parts of, you know, the world that exists is that um, near Gatwick, there was a detention center and there were a bunch of people who were just, you know, kind of English folk living near Gatwick. And they thought, well, we've got this detention center in our neighborhood. And there are all these people there, some of whom may not have family. Um, well, the least we can do, the least you can do as a neighbor is to go and say hello. And they started mm-hmm. visiting. They became visitors to people who had no one visiting them. And then gradually the visitation sort of started including, you know, advice on lawyers and rights and things uh-huh. like that. Um, and so I had wanted to, via this group, um, the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, I, I'd wanted to go into a center, but because it was COVID, you know, they weren't allowing any of visitors. Course, Again, yeah. another act of, of, you know, here are these people in detention and no one can come and visit them. Um, but one of the women who works at Anna Pinkers, who's remarkable, I, I basically got her on Zoom, like at the height of COVID. Um, and I said, Anna, you need to talk me through a detention mm-hmm. center, uh, which she did beautifully. And of course, Ali Smith has written something called The Detainee's Tale, which is when Ali goes mm-hmm. to visit a detention center, which, um, you know, also really gives a sense of what that is like in its most quotidian awful details yeah 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 um we are almost out of time um but where i would like to to finish it is sort of i guess drawing a little bit on the um 
the the, the missing chapters that you talked about earlier, mm. but also, but now sort of projecting into the future. Because when reading this, one thing we get the sense of is how rich and sort of how 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 I guess you sort of lived alongside Zara and Mariam. How how real they feel to us. Uh, must only mirror how 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 real they they feel to you as the writer, and so I'm just curious to know: Do you, since you you know you put the last full stop on this book, have Mariam and Zara continued to to live for you when when things happen in the world or happen in your life? Do you have you had a sense of kind of how how they might be responding to that, and 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 I guess particularly crucially how their friendship might or might not have uh, have responded. You know, it's it's an odd thing when I'm writing a novel, I live so intensely with the characters and I am, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm thinking often about their lives in ways that never make their way on the page. When I finish a novel, I fin- I'm done. You uh-huh. know, I cannot, you know, if people, people will sometimes say, you know, well, what do you think happened next? And I say, uh-huh. I have zero idea. I have not imagined a second past the moment where the novel ends. And in some way, so my brain will just shut down if I try to. It, it mm-hmm. and and in part it is I think to do with my relationship with reading is is that you know this understanding that that once a book goes out into the world it becomes the readers, and mm. I really hope that my readers wonder what happened in the seconds after the book ends or the ah. weeks or the months after. Um, but that's their work, and right. it is. And one of the things I love, and, and please, if anyone reads the book, come and you know do this for me. <laughs> I love it when readers come up to me and say, here's what I think happened next. Uh-huh. You know? And my, my response is never, you're right or you're wrong. It's, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Mm. I, I love I love this idea that you've essentially sort of you spent this time with the characters and then sort of set them free. And it's sort mm. of and it's for for, yeah, for the readers to then take it on and to. Uh, in, in I'm sure sort of an infinite uh, variety of ways as well, which is as we're speaking at this precise moment, Adam. The book belongs more to you than it does to me. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, because you are now the reader of it. Well, I accept. Uh, I accept that gift with <laughs> with <laughs> with great pleasure. Um, Best of Friends is, of course, available from uh, Shakespeare and Company, from our, our bricks and mortar store, from uh, our, our recently relaunched website as well, or of course from your local independent bookstore, wherever you may be based. Camilla, it has been such a pleasure to uh, to speak to you today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, You can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is a doorbell, which is the arrival... (laughs) Of my perfect timing. Time. I'm, I'm going to depart for five seconds. No, no worries. Go for it. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Lovely. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
there you go. Your podcast mm. listeners can can hear the moment where I receive <laughs> copies of my book for the first time. <laughs> it's a celebratory moment. <laughs> it is. 